Well, thanks, Mark, and let me add my welcome to Mark's. Um, we're going to be going through this passage and trying to think about it together for our um, time as we um, have it. And one of the themes that I think is really key in this passage is this question of how do you come to Jesus? I mean, that's the context. Nicodemus is trying to come to Jesus. Look at verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Nicodemus is exactly the person, I think, if we were to take a straw poll, that you would probably say is the type of person that Jesus would welcome, would accept. Uh, he's a Pharisee. That means he's religious. He's morally devout. Um, I try to put aside one of the, uh, for one time the kind of caricatures we have of Pharisees of being the kind of pantomime villains of the baddies. That's a caricature. It doesn't really hold up in reality. They were very moral, very religiously committed in many ways. They were really trying to seek, as we'll see, the kind of kingdom of God. And yet what's interesting, despite all of these things that Nicodemus has, he gets chastised, really. I mean, he gets a bit of a, metaphorically speaking, a bit of a wake-up call, um, a bit of a verbal um, rebuke, probably, and gets sent away, really, without the kind of encounter he was expecting. It's interesting, actually, as you go on in John's Gospel, that Nicodemus clearly went away and reflected on this and reevaluated, because we find him defending Jesus to the other Pharisees in chapter 7, and we find him coming to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with very expensive spices and a huge show of public commitment to Jesus after Jesus' death. So clearly Nicodemus reevaluates, and I'd like to suggest that on the basis of this we should reevaluate as well. But this key question, how do you come to Jesus? Now, look, most of the time, if I'm speaking to people, and because I'm a vicar, I get to ask this question, I get to say, you know, would you consider yourself a Christian? People will normally say things like, ah, I don't know, not a very good one, um, or I'm trying. Um, or I suppose if you take a straw poll when you talk to people, they say, well, I'm not really sure I believe in God, but then they normally precursor it with something like this. But if there was a God, I suppose I've not done anything really bad, and God would probably accept me. The problem with this is that um, Nicodemus has got all of the moral, spiritual, religious qualifications that you would surely think would make Jesus say, welcome, you're on my team, you're exactly the type of guy I've come for. And yet Jesus says to Nicodemus, in not so many words, you're coming to me the completely the wrong way. And it all centers around this phrase, what it means to be born again. And it's interesting because, of course, as we talk about being born again, that is a phrase that might, in your mind and in my mind, have a lot of religious baggage. We normally think of there are nominal Christians, you know, kind of normal Christians who have been baptized maybe as a child and occasionally will go to church at some of the key religious festivals, Christmas, Easter. And then you might hear of this group, maybe a sect called Born Again Christians. And they're the really committed ones. They're the, you know, the Bible bashers. They're a bit, you know, a bit overly zealous. But that can't be right because Nicodemus is exactly that type of person. No one has the type of zeal that a Pharisee had in the first century. No one could be more religiously devout, more zealous than him. And yet Jesus says to him, not you are born again. He says, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus says, I have no idea what you're talking about. So come with me as we look at this and try to work out what this phrase being born again means and also how we come to Jesus is the kind of big thing. And we're going to look at the morality of being born again, the spirituality of being born again, and the possibility of being born again. Let's first of all think about the morality of being born again. Just uh, notice some of the details of the story. I mean, this is history, but it's a kind of an exciting narrative as you get into it. This man called uh, Nicodemus comes, as we're told, at night. 
Now, why is he coming at night? Well, I think the key thing is shown in how he addresses Jesus. Rabbi, he says to Jesus, we know. Now, why does he say we? There's only one of him there. He's not using the royal we. Rather, he's representing the group of the Pharisees. So this is what happened. Jesus has come on the scene. He's done a number of miracles. He's just recently cleared the temple courts, which would have been hugely controversial. And the Pharisees are trying to get their head around who is this charismatic young teacher that seems to command such a following. And so they're sending a delegation. Nicodemus, they send him. He's going to go behind closed doors at night so no one sees it to try to work out who is Jesus. And everything about Nicodemus is impressive. He's together. He knows how to conduct himself in a social situation. So just look at the way he phrases things. It's like he's kind of, he just does enough to extend an olive branch to Jesus. No, rabbi, that's a term of respect. So he's not just saying, who are you? He says, rabbi, you know, we know, he says, that you are a teacher who has come from God. I'm giving you the respect you deserve. We know you must be a teacher who's come from God because you're doing some amazing things. So you see how he's trying to build a bridge with Jesus? But also notice how underneath that, he's also putting himself in a position of authority. We know, we've decided who you are. Rabbi, I'll, I'll give you the label. I'm an authority, I'll tell you the label you can wear. Can I just say, if you think that you can come and control Jesus, 1,000, 2,000 years ago or today, you are sorely mistaken. You cannot put Jesus in a box. Look at what Jesus does. No niceties back, no thank you for that kind greeting. Let me extend my greeting to you, Nicodemus. Straight in, boom. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And Nicodemus doesn't know what to do with that. I mean, just totally blindsides him. He hasn't got a clue what to do with it. And this phrase, born again, is completely perplexing to him. The phrase born again might be confusing to him, but the phrase the kingdom of God would not be confusing to Nicodemus. Um, it was being talked about a lot at that time, the coming of the kingdom of God. It was all the Pharisees really talked about. They were longing for the kingdom of God. And what they meant by that was the coming rule of God through the reestablishment of the Davidic dynasty. So David had been the great king, Solomon, his son after him, and then that had dwindled throughout hundreds, if not thousands of years of Israelite history. And they were waiting for it to be reinstated. And of course, their great problem is they're ruled by the Romans. And they're longing for this day when God will come back in, reestablish his king in Jerusalem, wipe out the Romans, and bring in the final salvation, the end of all things. This is what they were praying for. And the Pharisees thought that the way that it was going to be done was by being religiously and morally pure which was why they went into great detail about how you must live, how you could show your devotion to God. And then Jesus says to Nicodemus, not the kingdom of God is going to be brought in by your moral efforts and by your religious zeal. He says, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. He's saying, in other words, it can't be done through your effort. It's got to be done through something done to you. It can't be done through moral reformation. It needs to come through a complete transformation of your whole nature. Because this phrase born again is um, so kind of bound up with language we're um, you know, kind of familiar with in religious kind of vernacular, let me try and put it in an illustration. It would be a little bit like this. Imagine you found out that I was a gardener and I just got a new garden. And in the garden, there's this very large bush that looks very attractive and it's got berries on it, but the berries are poisonous. And so I say to you, look, I would really like it if those berries weren't poisonous. In fact, it would be great if they were raspberries. You know, I've got a two-year-old son and I don't want him to pick them and get ill. And I'd like him to be able to pick raspberries and us to have raspberries on our breakfast in the morning. And you say, okay, so what are you going to do about that? I say, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to fertilize it 
I'm going to mulch it. See, I've got the technical terms. Uh, I'm going to prune it a little bit, and next year it will yield raspberries. Uh, you don't need to be a kind of expert horticulturalist to look at me and say, that won't work. And you say, okay, well, that won't work. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to cut it right back low, down low and let it regrow. And as it regrows, then it will grow raspberries. You say, no, no, no. It will never grow raspberries. You need to rip it out. You need root and branch reform. That's where we get the phrase from, right? You need to pull the whole thing out and plant a new tree. You need a new type of tree, a new birth. That's what's being talked about here. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, this is not about pruning, morally speaking. This is not about self-improvement. This is not about evolution. This is a revolution. This is about total transformation. Morally speaking, Nicodemus, you are a million miles away from the person you need to be to be, in this, uh, to be fit for God. Now, you see that a little bit later on the passage. If you just turn over the page, because John circles back to this theme in verse 19, this is why he needs to be completely new. Verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that, they, uh, seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. You see here Jesus talks about light coming into the world. He is described in John chapter 1, we've seen this already, um, as being the true light who comes into the world. Later on, he will stand at a festival and say, I am the light of the world. And so he's saying, I am the light who comes into the world. And therefore, he's saying, I am moral perfection. Quite a claim. We'll look at that as we go through John's gospel. But he's saying how we respond to moral perfection is very telling. He says, people, including you, Nicodemus, don't like it. We draw back from it. Now, that would be very surprising for Nicodemus because he'd be thinking, I'm a, morally, a moral person. And the reason is, is because there are two ways we fail in our morality before God. One is very obvious, one is more subtle. Nicodemus falls into the subtle trap. The most obvious one is we transgress, we break the law, we do something bad, we blow in in a big way. It's obvious to everyone we've stuffed up. People like Nicodemus don't do that. They're two together. They're too morally well-framed. Nicodemus doesn't have his morality shown up like that. No, Nicodemus is, you know, a moral person. But Nicodemus has other moral flaws. The moral flaws of the elite, the moral flaws of those who think they are morally sufficient and religious, the moral problems of hypocrisy, judgmentalism, looking down our nose at other people, pride, thinking that they're better than other people. See how he approaches Jesus. I'm immediately better than you. Of course I am. I'm a Pharisee. You're just a lowly teacher arrogance, distortion of the realities of our lives with half-truths. No, 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 I'm morally perfect. Really? Never lied? These are the moral failures of the elite, of the moral, of people like Nicodemus. And the proof of it, that they're moral failures, is that when faced with the true light in the world, they don't want to come to the light. I wonder if those two sides of the ways we can fail morally, which one would you put yourself on? Are you the person who says, I've blown it, you don't know what I've done? Well, Jesus says, whatever you've done, recognize your moral failure. There's a possibility of a new start. That's great news for you. Or are you the type of person who says, new birth? I don't need new birth. I will reform myself. I've done everything else in my life my way. I'll do it myself. Thank you very much. Don't patronize me. You recognize the pride in that tone of voice? The judgmentalism, the hypocrisy? Jesus says you need to come to him. 
You need a new birth, a new start, total moral reformation that comes from God, not done from you to get to God. Uh, just down the road, we have Wesley's Chapel. Wesley's Chapel was built by a lady called Selina, Countess of Huntingdon. She was converted from high society, and she devoted her life to um, serving God and to trying to help people understand the good news of Jesus Christ. Particularly, she was a very generous benefactor. She had great wealth, and she built many, many um, buildings that would host the kind of evangelical Christian revival that was going on at the time. She particularly was very good friends with George Whitfield and John Wesley. And she would take to holding these evangelistic events, so events where people could explore the gospel, that um, on one level she would invite the high society and they wouldn't mix with the low in society. So afterwards, the preacher, George Whitfield, would go down into the kitchen where there would be low society and she would host them both. And she would invite liberally. Lots of people would come to it and lots of people became Christians through her. One day she invited um, a friend of hers who's called the Duchess of Buckingham. And uh, we have in history preserved the letter which the Duchess of Buckingham wrote back to Selina Counts of Huntingdon to decline her kind invitation to come and hear the gospel. This is what the Duchess of Buckingham wrote. I thank your ladyship for information on the Methodist preaching. Their doctrines are strongly tinctured with impertinence towards their superiors. It is monstrous to be told as they do that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches who crawl the earth. Yours sincerely, the Duchess of Buckingham. You hear the tone of voice? Polite, morally superior, hypocritical, judgmental, proud, ugly, and totally convinced of her own moral righteousness. And that type of person, probably more so than the person who's blown it, needs to hear Jesus saying, you've got to be born again. You need a completely new moral foundation. Secondly, let's look at the spirituality of being born again. Look with me at verse 5. So the conversation kind of goes on. Nicodemus doesn't understand what's going on. He kind of asks what's going on with this. I don't understand how can you be born another time into a mother's womb. And then Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Now here Jesus is referring to a prophecy that Nicodemus should have known, he would have been taught. It's from Ezekiel chapter 36, it's one of the very famous prophecies of the Old Testament, but Nicodemus is rattled, he's not thinking those terms as well. You can tell that Nicodemus should know this because Jesus says to him, verse 7, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. In other words, this is not new to you, this is predicted, prophesied in the Old Testament. And then Jesus rebukes him in in verse 10, You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. In other words, don't you know your Old Testament? Haven't you read the prophecy of Ezekiel? And Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27, we won't look it up now, but let me read it to you, says this. This is the prophecy. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, that is on his people, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is the spirituality of being born again. Two sides to it. First of all, notice being born of water and being born of spirit. And being born of water in Ezekiel 36 is, I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Now, to be cleansed from our idols, what is that talking about? Well, Scripture is really clear that we are all wired to worship, if you like. Uh, You might be saying, I'm a secular person, I don't think I worship anything, I'm just here to investigate. Well, even secular people worship something, because the etymology of worship is worth-ship. That which you ascribe the most value to, the ultimate value and importance to, 
in your life, and we all do it. Uh, it might be something like religion, um, it might be your career, it might be a relationship, um, it could be material possessions, it could be your CV, it could be getting the job promotion. We all have something that we say, if I get that, then I will feel worthwhile, then I will feel valued, then I will feel like I've done enough. And that is what the Bible calls worship. The problem is, is when we worship anything else apart from God, it's idolatry. It's worshipping little gods, if you like, in our lives. For some, it's status, popularity, social network. They say when they're popular, they're going to feel good about themselves. But of course, when you don't get enough likes or followers or a friend drops you, you feel awful. You die a thousand deaths. For others, it's their career. The meeting goes well. They pitch and they get the business. Um, they get the pitch. They feel euphoric. They fail the next month. They feel despondent. And so they kind of almost crave the next meeting to make it right again. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, this is the root cause of why you don't approach me right. Because you're worshipping the wrong things. You're not worshipping God, you're worshipping other things. Now, what would Nicodemus be worshipping? Because, of course, he would say he'd be worshipping God. Well, probably like most social elites, he gets his value from peer approval, from his status, from his sense of being a moral and religious success. He feels great about himself because of that. When the people look at him in his long flowing robes, he feels important, he feels good, he feels valuable. He's almost worshipping himself rather than worshipping God. Bob Dylan has got a great song. Um, he sang this, you may be a preacher with your spiritual pride, you may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side, you may be working in a barber shop, you may know how to cut hair, you may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir, but you're gonna have to serve somebody, yes indeed you're going to have to serve somebody. We all serve somebody or something. We all ascribe ultimate value to something. And if it's not God, then we are spiritually flawed before God. Which is why the second part of it, you must be born of the Spirit, is a promise to give us the, what the Bible calls a new heart, a new orientation, a new set of values and desires. Ezekiel 36 verse 27, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. It is a fundamental, radical transformation and reorientation of our values. And it's not done through our effort and force, but it's done by God's initiative. It's not done because we deserve it. It's done by God's grace, even though we don't deserve it. Given a new set of desires, God changes us from within. We can't do it. We can't do the spiritual heart transplant. Which then lastly leads us to the possibility of being born again. Nicodemus gets this. Look at the question in verse 9. How can this be? The penny is starting to drop, I think, with him, and he just says... How does this work? How can this happen? And look at what Jesus goes on to say. Verse 13 at the bottom of the page. This can be because no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And then the very famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. How can this be? Notice verse 13 says, it can't be done by human effort. Every other world religion and philosophy says, if you want to get to heaven, or you want to get enlightenment, or you want to get success, you build your own ladder up. 
That's how you get there. It's by your effort, your zeal, your moral self-improvement. And Jesus says, verse 13, that's never worked. No one's ever gone up to heaven. No one's ever made it. People have tried. It's never worked. You can't get up to a morally perfect God. It doesn't work. This is how it works, he says. The Son of Man, the only one who's ever been to heaven, he comes down. That's the dynamic of Christianity. Not God saying, build your way up, but the Son of Man comes down. He comes to earth. He doesn't ask us to build our way up to heaven. And then in verse 14, he refers to this rather obscure incident from Numbers chapter 21 in the Old Testament, where the people of God rebel against God and they're rejecting God, and so God judges them by sending serpents, uh, snakes, into the midst of their camp. And as people are bitten by these poisonous snakes, so they're dying, and so they're crying out in pain, and they cry out for forgiveness and for mercy. And God says to Moses at that point, take a bronze snake, put it on a staff, and hold it up in the center of the camp. And anyone who's been bitten by a snake and who's fearful that they're going to die or might actually die, they come and all they need to do is look at that snake. And as they look at the snake, they will be healed. Now you're kind of thinking, well, why all this talk of a snake all of a sudden? Well, Jesus is saying, look, this is, if you like, for Nicodemus, this is something which shows you what I'm talking about. And there's a couple of things to notice about that incident in the snake. First of all, the people in the incident of the snake don't do anything. They just look. Imagine you've been bitten by a snake. Imagine the poison is going through your veins. Imagine that you're on the floor and you start to feel your chest tight and you're thinking, this is the end. And then at that moment, Moses stands in the midst and he says, just look at the snake and you'll be healed. You're thinking, that's it? What, like no course of drugs I've got to take? I don't need to do anything? No, no, just look at the snake. You just look? It's that simple? I don't have to, like, do some great act of penance? No, just look. You don't do anything. God does it all. Can it really be that simple? Yes, my friend, it's that simple. Jesus says, how can you be born again? You just look. It's this simple. Look and live. Look and live. You don't do anything. And secondly, notice how gracious and loving God's intervention is. God sends the possibility of forgiveness and restoration to the people in Numbers 21 in the midst of their rebellion, in the midst of their sin. And so look at verse 16. God speaks love into our situation of rebellion and sin. God so loved the world. We read that and we think, well, what else would he do with the world? I mean, the world's wonderful, isn't it? Have you looked at the news recently? God so loved the fake news. God so loved the self-interest. God so loved the corruption. God so loved the inhumanity to our fellow man. God so loved the conflicts. God so loved the wars. God so loved the poverty. God so loved the disease. God so loved the world. He did not love it because it was lovely. He doesn't look at those things and think they're great. He looks at them, he thinks they're horrendous. And he says, I will step in in that moment and I will love it, even though you don't deserve it. And I will show you how much I will love it by sending my son to die on a cross. And as he does that, he doesn't come to condemn, verse 17. He comes to save. He doesn't come to speak a word of death. He comes to speak life and forgiveness. That is why Jesus died so that we can have a fresh start, so that we can be born again. We can have a moral transformation. We can have a spiritual new beginning, all through Jesus Christ dying on the cross. So how do you come to Jesus? 
Well, in many ways, of course, it's completely the opposite to what we would expect and to what we would want. We come to him not by our effort, we just look and live. We come to him not because of our moral or religious track record, we come because of what he's done for us. There's a great old hymn, let me close with it. Nothing either great or small, nothing sinner no. Jesus did it all, did it long ago. It is finished, yes indeed, finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need, tell me, is it not? Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this message and wherever we're coming from this morning, Lord, whether we would call ourselves Christians and we need to be reminded of the right way to approach you and the wrong way to try to approach you, Lord God, or whether we're looking at this for the first time and this is a surprise to us that you would not call us to come with our moral religious CV, but rather you call us to lay it all down, just to look and to live. Help us to re-evaluate. Just as Nicodemus, we trust, went away and re-evaluated and came to a very different conclusion about the Lord Jesus Christ. Would we reevaluate and see that nothing we do can make us right with you, but simply receiving what you have done for us? We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.